Soft Engineering Radio, episode 138, Learning as Part of Development with Alan Kelly. This is Software Engineering Radio, the podcast for professional developers on the web at se-radio.net. SE Radio brings you relevant and detailed discussions and interviews on software engineering topics every 10 days. Thanks to our audience and the partners listed on our website for support. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Software Engineering Radio. This is Arno, and today I'm talking to Alan Kelly about the importance of learning as part of software development. Alan, would you like to start by saying a few words about yourself? Yeah, hi. Um, well... I guess I was, to some degree, I still consider myself a software developer. Um, and all the time I spent hacking away at code, I kept finding that um, there was a bigger problem here. That I could, I got to a point where I could fix the code, I could make the code work, but there was always something just beyond the code that created a problem. So I started looking into this mysterious thing called management. Uh, and the more I, I looked at it and tried to understand it, um, the more it seemed to me that it all came down to learning and our ability to learn and the way in which we could incorporate that learning into the systems we were writing, the raw program code, the way we were working, and um, the direction in which we were, we were doing everything. So um, learning kind of grabbed my attention as a potential um, solution all around. I mean, this, this sort of sounds obvious and, well, in a way fascinating to point it out that way. I mean, everybody's talking about things changing and we all know that API level knowledge is outdated almost before you actually learned it. So obviously everyone in IT needs to learn on an ongoing basis. Um, what's so so special about learning that, or what's, what's so key, what makes it worthwhile even talking about it? It appears to be obvious. It is obvious, but um, put it this way, if um, If the key is learning a new API for a system, then the faster you can learn, the faster you can get the system out. And if you can learn those new technologies faster than your competition, you can use those new technologies. And actually, when you look at it, everything we do in software development is a form of learning because we are constantly problem solving. And problem solving is itself a form of learning. So if we can improve our ability to learn, uh, both in terms of the quality and the speed at which we learn, then it's going to allow us to write better systems and get them out there quicker. Uh, and it seems to me that while it's obvious, we haven't really paid a lot of attention to that aspect of the work we do, uh, which is funny because when you, when you go into the management literature, they're obsessed with this thing about learning, but we, we don't really think about it. We just get on and do it. You would we as an industry have not really paid attention to learning and the importance of it. Yes. In fact, in many ways, we've kind of gone in the opposite direction. Uh, and you think about the traditional ways in which we develop software. We we almost assumed that we could do all our learning up front, both in terms of our software designs and in terms of our project plans and in terms of our business requirements. And actually, that's not the way learning happens. Um, so when you start to view what we do in terms of software development through this lens of learning, 
it all starts to look quite different and actually uh, on occasions go as far as to say it's not really uh, an engineering discipline it's a learning discipline because we're constantly uncovering more uh, which is natural in learning why should we ever assume we can we can learn everything in advance of doing something this sort of um brings to my mind um, the concept of, of agile development. I mean, um, extreme programming had this catchy slogan of embrace change. Um, normally change and the necessity to learn can be frightening, especially if you're a technical person and need to keep up to date. It's always running the race to be up to date with the APIs and developing a system. It's challenging. It's frightening to um, not mm -hmm. have a grasp on things. Um, so... Um, It's frightening, but it's also what makes it exciting, isn't it? I mean, if we uh, if we are still coding the same types of systems and the same co command line consoles that we were when C came along, then um, nothing would have changed and it wouldn't be that exciting. So we have this odd relationship. We, we like the pace of change. Very few, you know, how many of us get a new mobile phone every time our telecoms provider offers us a new mobile phone? We like change in some ways. What makes things interesting? What tends to frighten people is um, change imposed from the outside. So when we hear that the company is going to import on a, an ISO 9000 or a CMM program, that is scary because change it's imposed on us. But isn't, But isn't most we are, change we're confronted with imposed from the outside? What's the alternative? Um, we choose which changes to embrace, don't we? We choose whether to take a new mobile phone. And when we decide we're going to have a new mobile phone, we can choose between some ultra-slim one or one that does email. We can decide between an Android one or a Symbian. Something. We, we're not passive in this. What scares people is, is the word change when it's coupled with change you have no control over, change you have no voice in. I actually believe most developers love learning and they love change. As I say, problem solving, which is what we do in coding, is fundamental change. The fact that you've chosen a career as a software developer means, almost by definition, that you like learning and you like change. Um, so I, I think this idea that um, we're scared of change is kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy if we set out to find a resistance to change yeah we'll find it I'll, i sort of agree that change can be fun if you choose it but um change being imposed from the outside is one of the facts of developing software so i i don't really buy into this idea of having the control over all the change i mean it's everyday life that imposes change from the outside yes <sighs> You're right. I guess what I'm appealing for is the people at the code phase to have um, more say in the change that's going on um, and to have that change through a learning process um, because management don't have all the answers. Nobody has all the answers. Um, And when management recognise there's a learning process and we need to include the people who are doing the work, the people who know the work best. This comes out of the lean community. You know, it's the idea of go to the workplace, go where the work is happening and find out from those people what change is needed. So now you're appealing to uh, management to have a management style that encourages learning rather than imposing change from the outside. Is that what you're saying? Yes. Yes. 
Um, I mean, fundamentally, um, managers don't actually have a lot of control in the software development process. Uh, they li might like to think they do, but if we look at all the experience we have with attempts to project plan stuff up front, we see that what actually happens is quite different. Because of the nature of the work we do, it's very intensive in our knowledge. The jobs that we do often, not only can our managers not do them, but our managers don't even know how to go about doing them. They may have done once upon a time, but they don't anymore. So because the knowledge to do the job is in, is vested in the people who actually do the work, they have a lot more control about it. Um, they have how they approach the problem is important. Um, so, um, I, uh, uh, yeah, managers can only really work, achieve the results they need through the knowledge of the people who work for them. So rather than exercising command and control or authority, uh, managers need to take on more of a, a coaching role, more of a leadership role. It's them, it's about letting them, they can set the overall direction, but the micro decisions, they need to enable the people who are doing the work to take those decisions themselves. It's the manager as teacher um, and well, te helping... Sort of, well, not really a teacher who can tell people, give people the answers, but rather someone who sets a, well, sets the, the room, gives room for learning. Yes, exactly. But, but, then, um, but then managers need to get things done, which tends to be in attention um, with learning because developers, I mean, we all like to play around with the new stuff and managers tend to be afraid of that for good reason because um, the, the learning and playing around with cool new stuff tends to fill whatever time is available and there are schedules <laughs> to meet. So how, should, yes. how, how do you balance yeah. that as a manager? <laughs> um, I, um, I, I remember working with a, a bunch of guys and I, I, I called them blue sky developers because they always had the latest um, beta of whatever the next Windows version was on their <laughs> machine. They always had the latest compiler. And it's almost like they've been tasked their project to go out for a five-year mission to seek out new technologies and how they could be applied. So you're exactly right. We, we can play around with this stuff. But learning doesn't just happen in the time we've set aside for learning. Learning just doesn't happen just in training sessions or when we're playing around new APIs. Learning is happening all around us all of the time. Um, managers can set, um, they need to set goals and objectives and then appeal to the people who are doing the work, the engineers, to find the engineering solutions which can meet those goals. Saying we need this, we need all of this and we need it by this date isn't it's uh, a recipe for uh, an unsustainable schedule. But saying we need to solve this problem and we need to solve it by this date, you're appealing to the engineering aspects of developers. And that's where the learning comes into play because it's giving them the freedom and the ability to seek out possible solutions. And as I say, it's, it's a problem solving exercise and problem solving is learning. Yeah, but, but, but again, um, their limited schedules are a effect of life. And a sort of mediocre system in three months' time is often better than an ideal system in a year. Yes, uh, and that's exactly right. So we don't want uh, we <laughs> how do I put this? We we 
we don't want to we're engineers we have we are given the parameters to work within and we construct the solutions within those parameters and it's up to us to come up with you know different solutions that match in different ways so given a certain problem we can come up with three solutions and one might be ready in a month and one might be ready in three months and one might be ready in a year um, and we the trade-off isn't this always ours to make but we need to present that trade-off to those people who are asking for the solution and um, but again engineering is problem solving um, so it's not just that we are um, learning the new technologies to solve this problem. The actual solving of the problem itself, our actual day-to-day -day work, is itself a form of learning. I think there are two sides to this. Obviously, from the engineer's side, from the developer's side, um, it's good to have an attitude of, I want to learn. And I perceive my mm -hmm. everyday work as an opportunity to learn. Um, but And this is sort of the, 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 the obvious and the generally good advice side. But then let's take the perspective of the manager. Um, mm -hmm. From the manager's perspective, it's a fact of, of life that developers are not focused on the business goals, but on the technology that is fun. And mm -hmm. from the manager's perspective, oftentimes developers are not very apt at making good trade-off decisions or even evaluating, presenting different alternatives in a, in a balanced way. So um, I th I th it sounds a little idealized what you were just saying about developers uh. have being responsible engineers with an ideal understanding and being able to present alternatives because there is always this hidden agenda of wanting to have fun with the latest technology, that kind of stuff, which tends not to be made apparent to managers. So from the manager's perspective, how can I deal with that? Mm -hmm. Um, well, this is where the importance of um, short feedback cycles is important. You need to know where you are in a project. We don't um, we don't send a football team onto the field and um, without telling them the score. Everybody who's on a football field knows the score all the time. Um, managers need to make that apparent, and they need to explain what's going on here. And it's, we've got diff. I think we're talking about different domains of learning here. There's, there's there's three areas in which our learning happens. One is one is the technology. It's the tools we use to create the solutions. And another is the application or the problem domain. It is the the, uh, the problem we are solving. You know, if we're writing a new payroll system, we're learning about payroll at the same time. And the third one is is the process. We're learning about the process that works. Um. And it, it's, as learning occurs in these three domains, now we've been talking about learning in the, the solution domain, uh, so it, the tools that we're using, the APIs and the new compilers and whatever. And we need to refocus people, perhaps in those kind of circumstances, on learning in the, the problem domain and the process domain, in that when will this get out? We're appealing to the same instincts, but often it's about how we phrase it. Um, now, if we've got short feedback cycles, and it rapidly becomes apparent when all we've done in the last two weeks is learned how to use a new compiler, and we haven't made progress towards the business problem. We, we have to balance all three of these, but what I'm trying to get over is that our very day-to-day -day work is, about, is, is a learning process, and if we can improve overall how we learn, we improve the day-to-day -day work. So it's not, they're not two different things. We, yes, they are, is playing with a new API and um, developing application code, 
that actually learning is occurring all the time. Well, yeah, obviously it's going on all the time, but how, as a manager, can I focus the team on to, to go for my goals, which can be in little, a little bit at odds with the goals of the team, per se? Well, this, this is where you... you uh You, you need to use the tools from uh, the Agile Toolkit. It's things like um, commitment towards a specific functionality. It's short iterations. It is um, deciding the parameters of what you're working in and saying, like, we are not, uh, we're not going to, we're going to use an existing language we've used before here. We're going to use an existing API. We're going to make those trade-offs. I think as long as the team are aware of those trade-offs, they'd accept it, them. Um, I'm, I'm not making a case here, I should say, for saying, you know, developers should go off and just spend their entire time learning new, cool new toys and APIs. No, no, no. Learning is what happens day to day on the job. Even if we're coding up some boring payroll system, we are learning somewhere or other. So you're saying trust the team, empower the team, and... And that way, guide them for, towards taking responsibility for the overall business outcome rather than their limited technical perspective? Um, partly that. Partly that. Man management in a, a more learning-based world is, is more of a, a leadership exercise and a, a, um, a coaching exercise. I like to think of it sometimes like rowing a boat and you've got these two oars and one of those oars is leadership and you want to lead the team and you want to, the team to share the goal of meeting that deadline with some kind of product and the other oar is authority. You you have some authority, not as much as you think, <laughs> um, but you, you can say, you know, we, we can't play with the API this week. Um, if you overuse that authority, it's, 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 you're going to negate it. But you've got these two oars. One is leadership and one is authority. And sometimes what you want is a bit of authority. You know, kind of, really, we mustn't install the new compiler today. And the other one is leadership. And um, actually, it's leadership through appealing to the, the problem-solving aspect of development, you know, challenging um, our engineers with problems and saying, let's see you solve this problem. Mm -hmm. There's always these these two sides to learning. I mean, on the one hand side, you want to want people to build up their um, their knowledge, their their theoretical knowledge, things they they've looked at, they know how to deal with. And the other hand side, you need people to get stuff into practice in order for them to really know it. Um, how would you say to balance that? Um, learning for its own sake um, can be enjoyable, but it doesn't necessarily have a lot of value. An example I usually give is that I can learn that the Archduke Ferdinand was assassinated in uh, Sarajevo in 1914. Mm -hmm. I can learn that fact. It's not really much use to me. It's not really a lot of value to me unless it causes me to change my actions. You have to couple learning with action. So I get the bus to work every day and if I learn that there's a different bus that goes from a different bus stop that will get me to the office faster um, and I don't do anything with that, I've learned information but without any action. I haven't really learned anything. It's only when we put that learning into action, when we couple learning and action, and often action means change, but learning plus action, we've created knowledge there. Uh, if we don't 
have action, then it doesn't matter how much we learn, we haven't really built our stock of knowledge. So um, if you're faced this conundrum, how much new technology should I learn against how should I apply stuff? I don't really see it as, it's more a question of what am I trying to achieve? And if achieving it means learning some new technology, go and do that. But you put that, when you put that into action, you create your knowledge. Uh, if on the other hand, solving a problem, I, I kind of know what I need to do. I know the technologies. I can apply the knowledge I have immediately and put it into action. Learning without action is devoid of value to my mind. So by all means, go and read books on Ruby and Grails and so on. But unless you're going to be putting it, unless you have a need to put it into action, unless you have some use for it, um, I don't think you've really added to your stock of knowledge. So um, learning with action is the important thing. That sort of makes sense. But well, the pragmatic programmers, for example, gave the advice to learn a new programming language every year, which typically means you learn a programming language every year that you won't yeah. be using in any practical context. Yeah. So that, that what, I think what they're getting at there is they are uh, at an individual level. They're about expanding your learning capacity. It's about challenging some of your assumptions. So suppose I go and learn Grails. I might not do anything with Grails, but Grails is going to make me view the way I write my Java programs in a slightly different way. It's going to challenge some of my assumptions and it's going to keep my brain in a, in a positive learning kind of mo mode. Because whether we like it or not, we are constantly learning. You know, if I learn that um, my boss always halves the estimates I give him, and as a result, I start doubling or tripling my estimates, then I've learned something. I've put it into action, but it's in a very negative sense. We want learning to occur. We want to keep it in a positive sense. So I'd say learning a new language every year is, is positive learning and it's helping us expand our capacity to learn and it's challenging some of our assumptions. So I, I think there's value there. Whether uh, I should be learning that all on company time, I'm not completely sure. Um, I don't think the company should discourage me from learning a new language, but I don't think we should go around demanding the time from our company to spend six months of the year learning a new language. Okay, so this is more about the attitude and taking responsibility in your own time. Yes. Well, this is sort of at the individual level, as you said. Um, it sounds like you see learning at, at higher levels as well. Certainly, certainly. I mean, it, it's, it's very easy at an individual level to see what we're learning. See, I've learned a new API, I've learned a new language. But there's also learning within our teams. You know, our teams learn, um, they learn collectively. We feed off each other. You know, how many times have you worked with somebody who's taught you something or because of something else someone has done, you've approached a problem in a different way. You've learned from other people and learning from other people is very powerful. Um, software development is no longer an individual sport. It's a team sport. And there's also learning in the way we act together, the practices and processes we follow. Do we have a stand-up meeting every morning? We have a stand-up meeting because we have learned that that's the best way to share knowledge. Um, we have a practice of um, always fixing bugs when they are reported so that we can keep our bug count low. The practices a team follows collectively, 
it means there's knowledge and learning embedded in the team. And at a higher level, teams make organizations. And organizations embed knowledge and learning in the way they do everything. They have learned that um, technical project managers are not very good at um, hiring people. So they create a human resource department. Um, they have learned that technical people aren't very good at doing accounts, so they create accounts departments. Uh, organizations as a whole have this knowledge and learning between them. And if you go and look at a lot of the management literature, management is, is obsessed with this idea of the organization's learning um, and improving. Some, some of the management gurus have said, I think as uh, a Dutchman named Ari de Goose said, you know, in the long term, our only true competitive advantage is our ability to learn faster than the competition. Uh, you know, if Microsoft introduces a new operating system and we all have to upgrade to it, the faster we can learn those APIs, the better. Yeah. This also takes us into um, the area where um, the organization and the architecture reflect one another. Um, you know, it's Melvin Conway back in 1968 who said, um, the system will copy the organizational structure or the communication paths in the organization. Well, what's and that? Today we see. What's sorry? that? How 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 does Con it reflect that? Conway's law, um, because um, an organization comes to create a system. They say we need a new uh, manufacturing system to control our manufacturing machines, and and they decide. Well, we currently have factories in. Hamburg and Munich. So we must have two systems. There's an automatic assumption there. And because we have two systems, these systems must communicate. Um, and because in the factories we have a factory manager and we have a production line manager, there must be a factory level console and there must be a production line console. Our, our systems are copies of the organizations we find ourselves in. And increasingly, because we have um, systems around us, our organizations can be copies of the systems we have. So because the system has two different access rights, it has an administrator level and it has a, a regular user level, we end up with two different job roles. We end up with a system administrator and a, a general user. Um, we find software systems which are built with a, a, a front end, a UI, a business logic level, and a database back end. And how many times do you see teams which are built around one team for the UI and one team for the business logic and one team for the database. Um, so we, we see these things copied and we create silos where all the knowledge on databases are one place and all knowledge and UIs are another place and we prevent learning between those two systems. Well, how would you go about changing it or let me ask it a different way. Is this even a bad thing? Um... Bad is a very prerogative word. Uh, it kind of depends on what you're trying to achieve. Mm. I think, I, as a general rule, it's not my favorite form of organization because you end up with these, well, there's two reasons. One, you end up with silos of knowledge. So you end up with UI developers who understand a lot about the UI, but they don't really understand um, the business that's going on here. The business knowledge is confined to the middle layer people. Um, so the UI people don't appreciate perhaps the way the system is used or the performance criteria under which it's used. At a more practical level, when you divide systems up like this, you find that to get any 
functionality delivered you you have to get changes in all three teams so you need to coordinate all three teams so one organization i'm working with at the moment they've got a major new project centered on the french market uh, unfortunately all the ui is done by a separate team so this team are, are beaving web using lots of business logic but they can't show it to um, the potential customers because they're waiting for the ui team and the UI team have different priorities and the UI team have a different schedule. Um, so if you want end-to-end -end responsibility, you have to have um, cross-functional teams. So again, you get back to the ability of developers in one team to learn about a different aspect of the system, a different domain. No longer is it good enough to say, I am a Java developer, therefore I will never touch um, style sheets. You need to have knowledge of all these different domains. So are you saying that it's better to divide a system um, in terms of the problem domain rather than the solution domain? Um, from, a, uh, from an organizational perspective, yes. Now, this gets into a very interesting question as to where is the architecture? Now, there may be um, good architectural reasons why the UI is very different from the business logic. If you reflect that in your organizational structure you end up with bottlenecks you end up with team rivalries you end up with difficulty de developing systems you need to find architectures which are compatible with the organizational structure the way i often view my work these days is creating organizational structures that will create the right architecture uh, many of the ar best architectural designs and patterns are hindered because our organizations can't implement them. Um, many sub-optimal organizational or architectural designs are foisted on us because we have to cope with the, uh, the organizational structure that we find. I remember once developing a system a few years ago and I was told that um, there was an organizational decision to use COM. Uh, that imposed a number of constraints on the architecture. You mean, I you was mean the organization had made a strategic commitment to using COM? Yes. And that meant they were hiring COM developers. And that meant that the teams are being set up to develop COM components, which constrains the architecture. You can't get away from the fact that the organizational structure and the architectural structure are interrelated. Um, and if you don't proactively manage that, one will drive the other. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, obviously, but I mean, you need, to, um, you need to make strategic commitments to technology as an organization. You need to limit the bandwidth of communication middleware, for example. Yes, yes, you do. So I don't really see what the bad thing about making a strategic commitment to COM infrastructure is. Um, um, or to committing to any other single communication uh, infrastructure. Um, 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 we it feels like we've strayed a bit as well. Um, uh, okay, it partly depends on what is it you're trying to achieve. If your objective is to produce a very innovative company, then it probably doesn't make sense to make a commitment to a single transport infrastructure. Uh, if, on the other hand, you're trying to produce a highly efficient uh, in terms of 
cost in um, structure, then yes, it does make sense to uh, prescribe one transport infrastructure. Um, you can't get away from the fact that the organizational objectives drive all architectural issues. An organization that wants to be very um, distributed, wants to be very innovative, why would they want to standardize on any infrastructure? Surely they'd want to have some teams try and work with COM and some working with uh, enterprise service buses and some working with RMI and to try a whole variety of things and to see what works. And this is where the learning angle comes in again. What are you trying to achieve here? If you're trying to be innovative, you've got to allow a lot of experiments to, to happen. You've got to try and learn a bunch of different technologies and work out which one is most suitable under which circumstances. Just because the, um, the people who are pushing your favorite enterprise service bus tell you that's the best way of approaching your problem doesn't mean it is so. Okay, but um, again, looking at things from the overall management angle, change and the necessity to learn, to build up new knowledge, is often perceived as a threat. And agile development has become a, has come to be a bad word, and something, um, some, some, it's become a phrase that is to be avoided in many contexts because it is, um, well, it has become synonymous for some managers with just playing around with new technology without having any focus and just planless hacking without any commitment to, to schedule. I'm, I'm aware that agile development yeah. is entirely different mm. from that, but mm. I'm wondering how, what would you suggest to how to address these fears of managers? Yeah, um, so you can't start off by defining what is agile development and uh, there is no single definition uh, there are some good definitions around but um, if you read different authors you'll hear different things um, and i think what happens is it becomes a it becomes a substitute for whatever it is i want to do so for business people they just want they just want uh, the telepathy the um, IT people know what they want and it's delivered to them. <laughs> For developers, they want um, no documentation, they want to play with new technology. So th whatever it is you want, Agile seems to fit the bill. Uh, unfortunately, I don't think we're ever going to get the, the genie back in the bottle. Um, Agile is kind of out of the bottle now and Agile is often taken to mean good or better or whatever it is I want to happen. Personally, I have three tests for Agile. I can be quite clear about what Agile is. My three tests are, number one, are you delivering business value to your customers? So if your business customers, whether they're inside your company or whether they're buying your product externally, if they're not getting um, value from your new developments, then you're not Agile. If on the other hand they are, you've passed the first test. The second test is, is your team learning and improving? Because um, hidden in all the Agile stuff, you will find again and again uh, the importance of learning, you'll find retrospectives, you'll find the importance of adaptation. This is the learning agenda that's inside Agile. I don't think it's, I don't think it's, um, I say hidden, because it's not, 
immediate obviously a lot of the time stuff like stand-up meetings planning meetings testing developments the obvious stuff but in the long term the learning agenda is far more important so my second test for agile teams is are you learning and improving what are you doing now that is different to what you were doing last month what have you changed what have you learned and frankly I don't care if a team today is doing test-driven development. I don't care if they're having stand-up meetings. I think if they are learning and improving, they will eventually adopt most of these Agile best practices or what we think of as the what Agile prescribes. We, we should talk about best practices separately. I, I use that phrase, but I don't like it. We'll go back to that. Um, but there's all these prescriptions for Agile and just following the XP prescription for Agile or the Scrum prescription for Agile does not necessarily make you Agile. A um, friend of mine, Steve Freeman, uses the term Potemkin Agile to describe teams that can tick all the Agile boxes, <laughs> but they're, they're not actually delivering anything anybody wants and they're not actually changing the way they work. So I say my second test for Agile is are you learning, changing and improving? If you are, I think you'll get there. And my third test for Agile is when you remove all the, the consultants, the experts, the coaches who you hire to help make the team Agile, are you still doing it? Because I hear stories of companies that go out and they, they hire a consultancy to come in and help them get Agile and everything is Agile, everything works while the consultants are there. And then one day the consultants start to withdraw and a week or two later you find that the build broke and nobody fixed it. You find the tests aren't running regularly and no one gets around to fixing them. You find the stand-up meetings drift from being nine o'clock to 10 o'clock to not happening. So if you haven't fundamentally changed the organization, the team, then are you really agile? You are agile for a moment. So when I put these things together and they're my tests for agile. So in there, there's, there's nothing about constantly learning new APIs or tools. There's nothing about not writing documentation. Maybe your domain requires a lot of documentation. Maybe you're in a, um, a controlled environment, you know, you're safety critical or something, and it makes sense to do that. Um, so first of all, let's define what we mean by Agile. So I think we've got that. Then I think there's an awful lot of um, what some people have called bad Agile or hypothetical rogue Agile out there, which as I say is people going using the, the Agile banner as an excuse to do whatever they like. Uh, I have a friend who works for one of the railway companies here in England and I, I told her that I was doing this Agile stuff and I'd written a book on Agile and so on. And she says, oh, don't talk to me about Agile. We had, we had Agile at our place. Our developers said they were Agile and they just go off and do whatever they want. That looks not Agile. You're not delivering business value. You're not giving your customers what they want. Um, so I think in some ways we've, we've watered down Agile to mean whatever it is we like this day. Um, and it comes to mean just generally good. Okay, I see. Well, let's try to get to some practical advice. Let's start by Mm, looking at the individual developer perspective, let's say I'm a developer, I want to learn. What's your advice for me? Um, well, I, I don't think, I think the, uh, the pragmatic program is learn one language a year is a fairly good place to start. I think you've got to open your mind. Um, gone are the days where you could uh, go to college 
and learn everything you need to know about programming and go out and spend the next 40 years of your life doing it. Um, you've got to be constantly opening your mind to new ideas. Listening to software engineering radio is a good start. <laughs> um, you know, get yourself out to conferences, uh, read some blogs, read some journals. And one of the things I always encourage people to do is start keeping yourself a journal. Start, you know, take some time once a week or a bit more often or a bit less often, depending on what your schedule is, and just try and think about what's been happening recently. Um, try and make sense of the world around you, what's happening in your project, the problems you've encountered, difficulties, the learning you're doing, uh, what it is you're feeling, and just, you know, spend an hour or so writing a few pages and thinking about the world around you. Uh, I think that's awfully powerful in focusing your mind on where you are, where you want to be, and whether the things you see around you are really what you, you think they are. Um, so, as an individual, that's where I'd start. Okay, well, now let's, well, let's look at the second role we've been talking about, the manager. Sort of still the individual, mm -hmm. but from the management perspective rather than the developer's perspective. I think most of the same advice goes there. Um, start opening your mind to new ideas. Maybe you don't learn a new language a year, but you should at least be reading up on your subject. And particularly if you are a, a manager who's been promoted from programming. Um, unfortunately, an awful lot of our managers come from a programming background and they don't really uh, they aren't given the training to change or they don't read up on the subject they don't take any chance say well why is management different to programming so they end up managing a combination of trying to manage developers like they've managed source code and managing the way they saw their managers manage which nine times out of ten they didn't really like the way their managers managed um, <laughs> so yeah so think about the way you're managing uh, keep yourself a journal. Think about the problems you're facing. Open your mind to some new ideas. Um, you know, a lot of software development conferences these days have tracks on management or management issues are hiding in there. Um, a lot of the agile books really are about best management practice. And uh, I think one of the secrets here is that in many ways there isn't a lot of new stuff in agile. It's pulling together a lot of ideas that are out there but not necessarily in a software community and presenting them in a way that the software community can understand them so don't just read your software management books go out and find some you know off the wall books and other types of management go and read them um, spend time talking to other managers spend time with your people the uh, one of the big problems I see in organizations today is that managers don't spend enough time listening to the people who are doing the work. Uh, they think they know what the problems are, though they're not quite sure, uh, or they make the, they completely get the wrong assumption. Most of the people who are doing the work already know the answers, they already know the solutions. And I think as a manager, you can learn a lot by talking to the people who are doing the work. Um, so I guess if that's the manager, that's the programmer, think about the team. The team have to spend time doing the same types of things 
the team have to spend time reflecting on what they're doing, whether that is as formal as a retrospective, you know, with uh, you know techniques I outlined in various books on retrospectives, or whether it's more of an informal retrospective, a chat about what they're doing. What I what I really uh, what really annoys me is is you know the team will get together in a coffee shop or in England in a pub and they'll talk about the situation, they'll say what should be done and for some reason they get back into the office and all of those great ideas are lost. Um, the team needs to be able to bring those kind of ideas into the organisation and going back to this idea of acting on what you know, um, they need to be able to act on those things. The team needs to collectively do stuff. It isn't enough to talk about you know, fixing all the problems, you need to get on and do them. So let's turn those ideas into actual action items. So, so uh, this sort of um, means that the manager needs to have the courage to enable the team to, to listen to the ideas and sort of dare to, to put them into practice because the team thinks they are great even if the manager doesn't really understand enough to be sure himself. <laughs> <laughs> um, if the manager doesn't understand enough to be sure himself, he should get one of the developers to explain it to him. Uh, because there's, there's two explanations here. Maybe he doesn't understand it because it doesn't make sense. Uh, <laughs> and I think we've all been guilty at times of, um, you know, having a great idea, but when we think it through. Uh, so don't just take the idea, the first idea that pops into your mind, um, explain it through. Um, and the managers do need to trust their people. That people are guys who are actually doing the work. They shouldn't be keeping secrets from them. They should be listening to their ideas. And if they, they can't go with an idea, then explain why you can't do it now. Uh, and try and help people come up with alternatives that may work. So sort of the manager as part of the team rather than the team being sort of yes, set, it goes set, back separate to from the manager. Yes, it goes back to what I was saying before, you know, it's the manager as coach. The manager is involved with the team, he's helping them find their solutions, he's helping them overcome the blocks. Um, and you know, the idea I mentioned before about leadership and authority being two different oars on a boat, if you're using the leadership or you're, you're kind of setting the problems, you're setting the challenges, you're inspiring the team to come up with a solution and then you're helping the team implement that solution. Okay, at the team level, I can see how this can work, but how would you, how can the organization as a whole learn? How do you get stuff from the team level to the level across teams? Yes, um, well... I mean, CMM and that kind of stuff comes to my mind, which sort of doesn't work in practice as far as I have actually gotten to know companies. Yes, uh, I I feel sorry for the CMM guys or CMMI guys, as we should say now. They uh, I think they get a lot of bad press. Um, CMM, uh, and we're going on a bit of a tangent here, but CMM is really a ruler. It's a way of measuring your organization. You can measure organization and say, this organization is level one, is level two. It's, it's one centimeter, it's two centimeters. What I've seen happen, and I guess you're referring to is where at the top management say we want to be CMM level two and they go and they kind of put the organization on one of those medieval stretching racks and stretch it into a funny type of shape. Um, the, the issue here is it, it's top-down change as opposed to bottom-up change and one of the things that's happened with the agile movement is that 
look at where Agile started. It started with, you know, the likes of Kent Beck. And it started with everyday developers. I remember 10 years ago, before I ever heard the word Agile, putting a whiteboard up on my project and, and deciding to work in time box iterations, although I didn't know the words time boxed or iterations. So, um, <laughs> Agile, and what we know of Agile, has started from developers who are doing the work. You look at CMM and ISO 9000 and other initiatives, and they've come from the top. They've come from somebody sitting in a, shall we say, ivory tower, coming up with a great idea, and then deciding to impose it on an organization. Um, actually, both bottom-up and top-down change are important. If you purely go with top-down change, you're constantly trying to enforce change. You're constantly trying to enforce a way of working. Um, if you go bottom-up change, I know a lot of developers have been in this situation, you're, you're frustrated by the fact that your managers are doing something different. That here you are trying to work in uh, an agile, scrum-like environment, and here you are managers depend, insisting you have a Gantt chart for everything you do. Um, so ideally what you need is you, is you want a pincer movement. You want the developers on the bottom really getting into, let's... Um, Let's embrace these changes, and you want the management saying, "Yes, this is where we want to go." Um, so, if you're if you're if you are a developer, you know you're at the sweet prerogative term bottom of the organisation. You're actually at the code face. You're doing some work. The challenge for you is not only get people doing this stuff, but to explain to people higher up why it's good. And if you're at the top of the organization and you want these guys down here to do it, the challenge for you is to excite everybody around this and put your money where your mouth is. So going back to your original question, how do you get a whole organization to, to do this? Well, this is one of the big problems our, our big organizations struggle with. You know, trying to get a Siemens or a General Electric to change is entirely different to trying to get your 20-person startup organization to change. Um, I still feel that, you know, pushing on the learning aspect um, is the way to go. It's, it's a leadership thing about showing people how to learn. It's about showing them that your organization values learning. And that does to some degree mean making time for learning. It means funding people to go to conferences. It means buying the books. Um, it means trusting them to try out ideas and we get into this whole thing here of you know learning through your failures which unfortunately has become a bit of a cliche it's very easy to say we should learn from our failures but what are we actually saying there well first of all we're saying that we are allowing people to have failures we are trusting people to have failures we are not going to insist that every risk is is um, de-risked before we allow anything to happen we have to be prepared to take some risks here we have to be prepared to trust people to do this. And when the failures occurred, we have to pick up the pieces afterwards. We have to say, you know, well, what were the lessons we learned there? Because actually, it's a very difficult time to learn when you've had a failure. You know, when we've had a failure so often, we just want to go home and forget about it. Or we want to go and, you know, have a good stiff drink. So let's look at the other side. What about learning from our successes? Let's look at the projects and the work that went well and say, what did we do right here? What can we do again? Um, and at an organisational level, uh, the bigger your organisation, the, the more often you need to reiterate that message and the more often you need to put the tools in front of the people. Um, 
I, I don't believe that simply setting up a wiki and asking people to document best practice mm. is is a way to go. Um, we said this before, you know, what what is best practice? Who decides what is best practice? And at the end of the day, if something is best practice, does that mean it can't be bettered? Actually, best practice doesn't stand up to analysis because there's always a better practice. Mm-hmm. Um, so don't riddle your organization with standard best practices. Don't riddle your organization with standards. You, you need to allow a thousand experiments to, to take place. Uh, but you need some way of communicating across the organization what's working well and what's mm-hmm. not working well. So you need those communication channels. And for um, a medium-sized organization, that may be as simple as um, a once-a-week talk program. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've set these up in organizations before. And Friday afternoon, 3 o'clock, we get together and somebody would deliver a talk. And it started off being very technical focused, you know, uh, the latest algorithm we'd implemented, the difficulties with the compiler upgrade. But over time, we started to put in the marketing department telling us what we were doing, the the um, business strategy department. And you know what? We had bigger turnouts for those kind of talks and the technical ones, even amongst the developers. Mm-hmm. Um, so for a medium organization, it's that simple. If your organization is, you know, uh, a General Electric, then you're going to need newsletters, mm. you're going to need emails, yeah. you're going to, and, you know, potentially your organization is actually too big to do it all at once mm-hmm. um, or even to do it at all, if I'm being honest. Mm-hmm. But um, every organization is different. Yeah. But but what about learning um, in, the re- in the reality or in contexts where actually several companies need to work together? I mean... Offshoring is a big thing now, which sort of seems to be at odds with all these kind of retrospectives and learning because it's always some sort of competition, some sort of contractual borders that sort of tend Mm -hmm. to prevent experiments and all these learning feedbacks. Yes, I I agree with you completely. I think if you're... uh And if you're trying to be an innovative company, that is a really big challenge. If, on the other hand, you're a company that purely wants to minimize your costs, uh, then you aren't going to be so concerned about that. Um, Learning across organizational boundaries, again, you you need trust. You need these organizations to be prepared to work together. Um, So at a management level, you can't have managers holding back it's very difficult to know you you don't want if you are sent from your company to talk to people you're working with in another company you can't constantly be thinking can i tell them this can't i tell them this um you either need very clear rules on what you can and can't say or you need to have an open playing field because otherwise you're going to err on the side of of not telling them so much um so um, trust is important and trust is something that's built it's not just a word we use it, it's something we have to build through our actions um, so we can't downplay that one face-to-face contact is very important mm. communication yeah. as a whole um, you know there's, there's a yeah, there's uh, this whole agile again, toolbox you were talking about there yes yeah again and again I read stories of um, work that's been offshored um, or teams that are in different locations that have to work together. And without fail, they work badly together until there's human contact. 
you know, we don't work with machines. Hmm. Well, we do work with machines, yeah. but, you know, we, we, our work is predominantly between individuals. And if individuals don't feel as if they have a human bond, hmm. that isn't going to happen. Yeah. Um, I think, yeah, offshoring, to my mind, is kind of um, two ways of doing it. You can either be very contractual and very clear-cut. Um, that's not going to lead to a lot of innovation. It may lead to low costs. Um, in you know, it's very transaction-based, and that might be the way for some companies to go. Uh, the other way is is to go for high trust, high involvement. Um, you're gonna you need to invest in things like video conferencing kit you need to invest in video calls you need to enable things like voice over ip mm. voice over ip is an interesting technology because at one level voice over ip is no different from picking up a telephone at another level because when you're working with a computer it's so much easier massively easier than picking up a telephone the amount of um, communication is boosted and if you're um, a company that has got an offshore development center you can't block your IP ports. You need Skype or a Skype equivalent. Um, if you skimp on video conferencing kit, you may save yourself a few thousand euros here or there, but you will cost yourself many more thousands of euros in miscommunication. Mm -hmm. um, if you don't fly people between locations to meet each other, you'll save a bit on the airfare, but you'll miss out elsewhere. Mm -hmm. um, the, if offshoring and outsourcing makes sense for you financially, Go and do the maths and make sure it makes sense for you to do it effectively. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, thank you very much. Um, it's been pretty interesting to, to sort of have this overall perspective how learning affects all different angles of software development. there there any final aspect you'd like to share with our listeners before we wrap this up? Um, I think when you think about it, learning occurs all the time, everywhere. It's just a question of which direction we're learning in, whether we are harnessing it for a positive benefit or for a negative benefit. And again, I'll reiterate, there's no, there's no value in learning unless you're actually doing something with it. So it's learning plus action. And that's my closing words. Okay, great. Thanks a lot. Many thanks too. And thanks everybody for listening. Thanks for downloading and listening to Software Engineering Radio. Software Engineering Radio is an educational program brought to you by Hillside Europe. If you want more information about the podcast and all the other episodes, visit our website at se-radio.net. If you want to support us, you can donate to the SE Radio team via the website. Or you can advertise for SE Radio, for example, by clicking on the Dick Reddit Delicious and Slashdot buttons. To contact the team, please send email to team at se-radio.net or if it is specific to an episode, please use the comments facility on the website so other people can react to your comments. This episode of SE Radio as well as all other episodes are licensed under a Creative Commons 2.5 license. Please see the website for details. Thanks to Charlie Crow and the Podsafe Music Network for the music used in this show. The song is called Vegas Hard Rock Shuffle. <laughs>